Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Hey, everybody. Uh, Norm Ornstein is my guest today. And for those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast, Norm is the only one of my guests who is any good at all. So just so you know, unlike all the others, this one is not a complete waste of your time. Norm and I have a a wide-ranging discussion. We recorded it on November 5th in the wake of the Virginia election. So since then, a few new developments. Some Virginia parents are now calling for book burnings of books like Toni Morrison's Beloved, and uh, not just, you know, to add to Virginia's carbon footprint. They say the book, which won a Pulitzer Prize for the Nobel laureate, is pornography because it contains violence and sex and violent sex. Uh, These parents uh, wrote a complaint, actually, saying, Our 16-year-old boys get quite enough pornography on their iPads, thank you. We send them to school to give them something else to do with their time, for God's sake. Can you just give them a break from the constant porn? (laughs) A few other things have happened since Norm and I recorded this. Arizona Representative Paul Gozar uh, posted a video of him murdering Alexandria Casio-Cortez. That seems like it wouldn't wash in a normal workplace. Paul, uh, did you make a video of of you assassinating Alexandria? Yes, I I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, uh, okay, Alexandria didn't. She didn't. No, uh, she said it made her feel very uncomfortable and uh, frightened her for her life. Really? Well, that certainly wasn't my intention. Yeah, um, (laughs) what workplace in America is that considered okay? Uh, Paul, officers Herrero and Hennessy are here to cuff you and take you downtown for questioning. You should know there is a restraining order, and they are not to come within 300 yards of Alexandria or this this workplace. Really? Yes, Paul. (laughs) So, uh, did did Kevin McCarthy take any disciplinary action against Gosart? No, but he is considering punishment for the 13 Republican House members who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, thereby giving President Biden a, a victory. And Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene put out a list of the private cell phone numbers of those Uh, 13 Republicans, Uh, here is one of the calls that Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan received. I hope your family dies. Hope everybody in your staff dies. You piece of traitor. 
Hmm. Remember Gabby Giffords? But evidently, Kevin McCarthy is, is you know, just fine. Just fine with this. This this is not cool. Now, the thing is, you watch. Six months from now, when there's a groundbreaking for one of these projects in the district of one of the Republican members who didn't vote for the stimulus, that congressman will still show up for the event and put on a hard hat and grab a shovel so it can be part of the celebration of a new extension of County Road 18. That exact thing happened a few months after uh, Democrats passed the infrastructure bill in 2009 after Obama had become president. Amy Klobuchar and I were at a groundbreaking for an extension of, of actually Highway 610. And so was Republican Congressman Eric Paulson, who had voted against the bill. Now, you remember, I got to the Senate a little late after the infrastructure bill had, had passed. So after a few state reps and a mayor or two had fought for this project spoke, it was Amy's turn and then mine. And I said, well, I don't really deserve any credit for this. I got to the Senate after the infrastructure bill was passed. So we really should be thanking just those members of Congress here who voted for it. So let's see. Well, there's Amy and, and I look straight at Paulson who was standing there in his hard hat and with his shovel. And I said, and, well, I guess just Amy. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> okay, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Sure is shooting. Well, uh, we've got Norm Ornstein today talking about the transformative nature of Build Back Better, and we'll be going into a bit more detail about the Ornstein-Franken plan to modify. It's modify the filibuster so Democrats can pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and save our democracy. It's a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Norm, uh, thanks for coming in. This, I don't know, how many of these have you done? Um, a lot. Yes, a lot. We're, we're really good friends. Uh, we also have this filibuster idea together to modify the filibuster, which has become more important now with the voting rights, uh, the Freedom to Vote uh, Act. And, of course, one of the things that happened earlier this week, uh, and today is November 5th, is that uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, brought up for a vote, he hoped, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It was blocked by filibuster, filibustering the motion to proceed. So right. filibustering so no- even the ability to debate the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. What was especially striking about that, two things. One, only one Republican, Lisa Murkowski, voted uh, to for cloture on the mm-hmm. motion to proceed. Two, Mitch McConnell said that this was an outrageous federal overreach taking over elections. It is fundamentally the same bill that Mitch McConnell co-sponsored in 2006. Uh, It's pre-clearance. Yes. Basically rolling back uh, the Shelby County decision where John Roberts eviscerated the act. It's restoring it. And the same thing that he co-sponsored. The same thing that was co-sponsored by Chuck Grassley and many other Republicans who were in the Senate back then, now they all view as evil, something that they they didn't just vote for it, they co-sponsored it. So you could call this hypocrisy. You could call what McConnell said a flat-out lie. And why not? Well, I have this new theory after Virginia and what Youngkin ran on. Day one, he was going to get rid of critical race theory in their K through 12. <laughs> yes. And so I, I think their new thing, the Republican Party's new thing is now only lies. Yeah. It used to, I think it used to be like, okay, guys, uh, let's use lies a lot. But uh, if something's true and it works to our advantage, use that too. And now I think they're going like, okay, that stuff that's true and works to our advantage it's just confusing people. <laughs> it's just, just li- only lies. Got it? You know, uh, consistency would be good for them. And they're close to it. They're very close to having all lies, but yeah. not l- quite l- there l- Let's stop, you know, talking about permitting, hurting certain kinds of businesses and construction and stuff like that, because it does. And so it'll confuse people <laughs> because it, it's half true at least. And that's just going to just let's go. Uh, vaccination doesn't work. January 6th was uh, a tourist uh, uh, visit to the hill. Well, it was a false flag operation. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a false flag operation. It was uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And people say, well, how could it have been Black Lives Matter? I didn't see any black people. But the thing is, is that Hollywood makeup artists uh, worked with Black Lives Matter so that they look uh, not like Black Lives Matter. Wow. Uh, that's And, of course, that they're all part of the satanic cult. Uh, they're joined together on that front as well. So and amazing. I think we made a mistake this week. That, again, this was Virginia was this week. First of all, I think our biggest mistake was not stealing the election. Duh. 
<laughs> there it was. You know, it's not even <clears throat> saying after it that it was stolen when you could just go right in and steal it. Yes, and and that's the other thing is why didn't we say it was stolen? We re really are not understanding how this all works, evidently. Here's <laughs> another huge mistake. So Youngkin built his campaign around we're going to end critical race theory from K through 12, as you said, which of course has never been taught. What if Governor Northam, the day before the election, said, Virginia voters, we've heard you. We are stopping critical race theory in its tracks from being taught K through 12. So you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to vote. It's done. Done. Not a, we, we will not introduce it. Yeah. <laughs> we are banning the future possibility of yeah. introducing it. I know uh, Yonkin, I think, said day one critical race theory is out of the schools. Day one. You know, the other thing uh, that he said he will do on day one is he's going to eliminate the uh, state gasoline tax and give people back the money. The interesting thing there is that the gasoline tax in Virginia is what pays for paving the roads and, you know, basically keeping them from being pothole filled and dangerous. And 30 to 40% of that gas tax is paid by people from out of state because, you know, a lot of people from the Washington area travel through Virginia and others do. So this is going to give people in Virginia a few pennies and they're going to end up giving it back as they have to get their tires replaced because they're going to hit potholes. Tax cutting mania is uh, another part of the cult behavior of uh, Republicans. And, you know, I mean, that was, you know, was, gas prices have gone up. Yeah. So why not hit that? I mean, the gas uh, taxes, you know, I've been told by uh, a number of people who work like with Walmart that the price of gas is like the number one concern of most people because they have to yeah. fill their gas tank and that people go to Walmart, you know, at the first of the month, they buy the baby formula and diapers. So, I mean, it's the price of gas means a lot to people. How much do you think that not getting to build back better, not getting a bill and the infrastructure bill along with it uh, was responsible for the performance, not just in Virginia, but in the incredibly tight race in New Jersey. So I would say this, uh, in both of those cases, in the case of Virginia, you're talking about a difference of about 2% in uh, New Jersey, less than that. You could point to a hundred things that could make a difference uh, in that narrow a range. You know, an additional uptick in Democratic votes, a slight downturn in Republican votes. It made a difference, there's no doubt, in Democratic enthusiasm. It made a difference, especially in Virginia, in taking away what could have been a central theme for Terry McAuliffe in running. But if I had to pick the main reasons, uh, for what happened in both of these places. Uh, first, what you see is a tremendous surge in Republican votes. You know, in Virginia, there was an expectation that the black vote, the core Democratic vote would be depressed. Uh, there wasn't that much enthusiasm. McAuliffe actually got several hundred thousand more votes than Ralph Northam did when he won four years ago. But the Republican turnout was that much greater. 
And I think it was greater for a few reasons. One is they've been whipped into a frenzy by right-wing talk radio, by uh, Fox News, and by others that uh, the threat is real from Biden and from Democrats. Two, the uh, use of race. The critical race theory is uh, not just a dog whistle, it's a dog bullhorn about race. And that has a big impact on white voters, white working class voters. Uh, but the third thing, and we know that the huge increase in turnout in Virginia, I haven't seen exit polls from New Jersey, I think, because we didn't have very many because nobody thought it was going to be that close. But it was non-college educated white women. And I think COVID was a huge factor in the elections overall for a couple of reasons. You had a year and a half or more where kids, kids home. everything was shut down. The kids were home. Schools were closed. And it's an enormous burden on parents. And then Delta hits. And it's like, just when you think, finally, we're over this, it's right back on you. And if you are a working class family where the two parents work, and all of a sudden, you can't have your kids in school. So your arrangements are completely disrupted and you're not going to be able to go to work uh, or you're going to have to find childcare for the entire day, maybe not just for a couple of hours at the end of the day. And if you're not working and you're stuck in a small two-bedroom apartment with three kids 24-7 for months on end, you're not going to be a happy camper. And you know, for you or me, I could look at it and say, well, we wouldn't be in that position if Donald Trump had treated covid the way any rational There's leader so would. much irony here. For example, yeah. I do believe that if two months ago they had passed the provisions of Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill at the same time, that they would have won yeah. in both, I mean, by a big, bigger, bigger margin, margins. obviously, in New Jersey. Because, and I think a lot of that turnout was, it's so ironic, being tired of the pandemic. Well, you know what? When 30% of Americans are refusing to take the vaccine, mm -hmm. that keeps the virus going. That's all. That's what it does. Yeah. Self-inflicted wounds. And who is telling them not to take it? Tucker Carlson, yeah. Sean Hannity. And they're telling them not to do the mask mandates. Yeah. All this stuff which would stop the virus in its tracks. If we had been doing that... People would be able to go to school. Kids would be able to go to school if they wore masks, if their everybody was vaccinated, if their parents yeah. were vaccinated. The th it's it's how viruses work. We have mandates for mumps, measles, rubella. We have all these mandates for these vaccines. The other irony, of course, of course, is that a big part of Build Back Better, or a significant part, an important part, is Childcare, yeah. So, so it's supplementing childcare. Here, here's a piece of data I like repeating over and over again, uh, which is in Europe, the typical country, the average average European country, supplements each kid's uh, daycare or childcare fourteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah, the United States five hundred dollars. Okay, now, right now, I think in the plan and Build Back Better, a family would be capped 
at 7% of its income paying for childcare. In other words, that's the most you would pay is 7% of your income. I think right now it must be some ba- families are paying 20, 25%. So this would be a tremendous help to exactly who we're talking about. You know, if we had passed this thing two months ago when we should have, we could be saying that. Uh, (laughs) We could be saying that. I've got a a couple of reactions to it. I mean, we subsidized to the tune of $500, or as Mitch McConnell would say, $500 too much. But we did, there, there are other parts of this that benefit directly just the people who turned out to vote against Democrats and vote for Youngkin and vote against Phil Murphy in New Jersey. But the fact is that the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion, passed at the beginning of the uh, Biden administration, gave these $300 child tax credits, refundable tax credits out there, saving huge numbers of people put in place eviction moratorium that saved a whole lot of others who were in trouble because of all the economic turmoil caused here. And most people don't even think of it as a benefit that Democrats or Biden did. Now, partly that's because the administration has not sold it. And my caveat to what you said about if they'd passed it two months earlier is it's not clear to me they would have gone out and sold it. Democrats, for whatever reason, think if you get it done, then it's going to be self-evident to people that uh, you did it. Uh, I, just one, Why do they think that? I don't know. And why they keep thinking it is <laughs> bizarre. Um, re- you remember when we got the uh, stimulus package at the beginning of the Obama administration, the economy flat on its back, and it was a struggle, but finally done with Democratic votes and three Republicans in the Senate who used it to water down key provisions. But it was an enormous thing that made a huge difference in people's lives. And that summer, Judy and I, my wife and I, were out at a national park uh, in the West. We're driving through this park and there are these wonderful structures that have been put up, a a little amphitheater in the park for the rangers and uh, uh, other things in the brand new road going through this major park. And everywhere there were signs. This was paid for by the American uh, uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And I turned to Judy and I said, how many people in this park do you think know that that's the Obama stimulus package? And she said, two. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what they've done with the American Rescue Package. And my, you know, uh, sort of gripe with this White House is months ago, we should have had Joe Biden out in the suburbs of Lexington, Kentucky talking about universal pre-K and what that would mean as a jobs program and what it would mean for kids as they're able to flourish when they're getting this important input at the most critical stages of their lives. And he should have been in the suburbs of Cincinnati the next day talking about the uh, child tax credit and then talking about outside Dayton, Ohio, about free community college. Make this about the individual components of the plan. And Democrats ended up with months of squabbling, all portrayed by the press, but it was never refuted by Democrats. 
Is it six trillion? Is it three point five trillion? No, they're getting it to one point five. It was all about the money, which makes it look like they're just spinning their wheels, doing nothing for people. And if we don't eventually see a lesson learned here uh, about making the case that you're doing something that's improving people's lives, how many Americans do you think know that the American Rescue Plan cut child poverty in this country in half more than everything that was done in the war on poverty? I would guess not a whole lot. Hopefully, hundreds of thousands more listening here. I remember during the uh, joint session, yeah. It looks like the State of the Union speech, but it's called joint session if the president, for the first time the president does that. There was a moment where he talked about uh, the child tax credit and said, this will cut childhood poverty in half. And they run a wide shot of the chamber. And the Democrats stood and applauded. <laughs> and not one Republican <laughs> applauded. And I was thinking like, so they just, their thinking was, Hmm. Cut childhood poverty in half. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) I I know. Well, you know, sadly, one of the lessons learned by them from this election, as if it's a lesson they needed to learn since they knew it before, is the worst things are for people in this country and the worst things are for their own voters, the better it is for them politically. I've always said about our messaging that all our bumper stickers end with continued on next bumper sticker. We just are not good at that, but that's stupid and it's ridiculous and just go out and tout what we did, but we had to get this done. Now you can make the argument. We don't have the 51 that we need with the vice president. We have 48 plus the one, but we, and I don't know what's going on. I hear contradictory things from friends of mine yeah. in the Senate. I just don't know how much is mansion and how much is cinema or how much which piece is which and whether some things that are being depicted as obstruction are maybe they're uh, not terrible ideas. Like, for example, maybe instead of raising the rates on corporations you just make sure that they honestly you know, yeah we find honest ways to f- figure out what their profits are yeah and do a minimum tax um mm-hmm. it, it's because uh, you can raise rates and if they manipulate their income so it doesn't look like they have any profit or you're able to channel it all into different kinds of tax credits depreciation and otherwise you're going to get nothing or very little. I mean, there are ways of trying to plug those loopholes. I'm for that. Uh, you know, what I find also in this, all these negotiations is this great irony. Th- that said, we should raise the Yeah, we should raise the rates. Yeah. Well, you can do were. both. You, yeah. you could do both. You, we should yeah. do both. Yeah. Yes, obviously. So the press narrative has been that the progressive caucus in the House is just like the Freedom Caucus, the right-wing Republicans who became a caucus because the previous right-wing caucus wasn't right-wing enough for them. And their whole modus operandi, the Freedom Caucus, is to throw grenades at their own leadership. They drove John Boehner out of uh, his position as speaker. They drove Paul Ryan when he was uh, speaker up a wall. 
what we've seen is the progressive caucus has been the pragmatic caucus in all of this. They didn't say it's $6 trillion as Bernie uh, Sanders had first put out there or nothing. Then they didn't say it's $3.5 trillion, the compromise that they had worked out or nothing. Then they didn't say $1.75 trillion. There's no way we can compromise that far. And as this bill was being debated in the House, as they moved towards getting votes on both of them, the, the holdouts were the ones who were supposed to be the problem-solving moderates, the Josh Gottheimer wing of the party. And of course, the holdouts in the Senate are the most conservative Democrats in the Senate. So uh, we have to, in some ways, think about our politics in a different way. Who are the ones really trying to find the compromises that are the key of the legislative process to actually make something good happen? I mean, the other thing that I find maddening is this is portrayed not just by Republicans who call it uh, the socialist dream for Democrats and nightmare for Americans, or sometimes even use the C word communism, but the press corps has viewed this as the Democratic Party and Joe Biden moving dramatically to the left. Well, parse out the Build Back Better plan, child tax credit, overwhelming support from the vast majority All of Americans. All of this is overwhelming support, yeah. right? Pre-K, universal pre-K, overwhelming support. Free community college, which in the end probably won't be there, but should, overwhelming support. Every element of this plan that was in the original version is viewed by a majority of Americans, a supermajority of Americans, as something that would be good to do. So if that's the case, then we're all socialists. Well, also, things that are labeled as socialists, like family leave. Yeah. Every other developed country has family leave. I, I was yeah. on the HELP Committee, Health, Education, Labor, yeah. and Pension, and we would have testimony on family leave, and we'd have Pricewaterhouse or other corporations yeah. that are American, but operate internationally and they'd all come in and say every other place we you know we are they have family leave and it works great <laughs> and why do, i don't understand we don't why we don't have it so it's like it's this is not radical stuff this is stuff that's been proven to work for decades in some cases in many cases yep. and it's just i mean mitch mcconnell and i I, I wish I had brought this with me, has said this thing about uh, basically Democrats want Americans to have democratic childcare ideas and divorce work from childcare. And it's like, and it's basically the opposite of what it is. Yeah. You, you have childcare so you can work. And they, they're just clueless. I don't think he's clueless. I think he's lying. And he knows he's lying. And it gets back to what you were saying. He's inching towards their ideal. Everything only being lies. a lie. Yeah. <laughs> only, okay, everybody. Only lies. Yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, we've still got nothing. I mean, we've still got no piece of legislation. Do you have any, uh, uh, any predictions or is that well, if a dangerous we could, thing? Well, if we could go from here in the studio to... Joe Manchin's uh, boat, which is a couple of miles from here, have a conversation with him. Maybe we would have a better idea. You know, the, the message that most Democrats took from the election results was, 
we better move our asses and get this done. The lesson that Joe took was, this just shows we need to get it done right and we'll take whatever time it takes. The caveat to that as just simply foot dragging is they're not going to be able to do this in any case until they get the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, uh, assessment of its budget impact. You can never do it without you that. You can't. You yeah, can't. and so Joe did this announcement the day before <laughs> Virginia yeah. uh, said, well, I'm not going to do this until the CBO score comes in. Well, you can't do it without right. until the CBO score comes in anyway. Yeah, and I hope they'll expedite that. The good news is we also get a, a score from the Joint Taxation Committee in Congress of the revenues. And a question becomes of whether the revenue measures that you put in are actually really going to bring in enough revenue. And the Joint Committee on Taxation said that the direct provisions there will bring in at least $1.5 trillion for a $1.75 trillion bill, but there are other extraneous side tax benefits that will bring it well over the $1.75 trillion. And of course, we ought to note that when Manchin talks about being a fiscal conservative and how he will not raise the debt or the deficit, the uh, he was an enthusiastic supporter of the bipartisan infrastructure plan that fell $256 billion short over its lifespan of uh, having enough revenue to pay for it. Yeah. Also, did did he like say, is there a work requirement in family leave? Uh, I'm afraid he did. I just have to say that, was okay, we all have, I guess that would be called a brain fart. Yeah. Um, because the whole, when you're doing family leave, it's to leave your job, <laughs> to take family leave when you have a family thing happening. So- you, But you know, I, I think the, <laughs> the smart way to have reacted to that was- yes. You're absolutely right, Joe. We are going to change this paid family leave to make sure that it's only for people who are working. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You win. You win, Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, let's put them up on our shoulders and carry them around yeah. the chamber. Yay. Yay. Work requirement for the family leave. <laughs> Yay, Joe. <laughs> And that was the day that Joe Manchin decided that he was with everybody. Yes. And properly <laughs> celebrated among the caucus. And the rest is history. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you would have been a great LBJ. Yep, yep. Uh, phony. <laughs> okay. Oh, well. Um, that was not his best moment not as best moment. Not, no. that's what you say that's yeah. that's what we say well it's it, it actually is it uh it raises uh, an interesting uh observation i hope an interesting observation which is joe talks a lot you yes know, he does it's uh, when cinema goes by and reporters ask her questions she usually just keeps walking she does not want to interact mansion never does that he always stops and wants to talk he does press conferences and I think a lot of it is just saying things that are in his head or that just pop into his head. And, yeah, that he hadn't thought through. He hadn't thought through. <laughs> like the work requirement for yeah. a family. And uh, so it means that we should not take every word out of his mouth as gospel. 
And it's why when he gave this press conference the day before the elections in Virginia and New Jersey and other places, and some people took it as slamming the door on the negotiations, most of his colleagues, Democratic colleagues, didn't because they knew that they weren't going to be able to do anything until the CBO score came in. And I think also knew that it was very, very likely that CBO, because the revenue measures that they put in are mostly fairly straightforward in terms of the revenue that'll be raised. And the programs, they didn't do a lot of subterfuge. They cut the number of years. Manchin said he didn't like that, but it's a perfectly reasonable way. Cut to, the number of years that each From the program. 10 years that the program would uh, stay in effect to, in one How, case. Why did he not like that? It was le less because costly. Because he says it'll end up being more costly because, of course, once these programs are there, they'll be continued, which in effect means – yeah, why will they be continued? Because they're working <laughs> and because they're popular <laughs> in West Virginia. <laughs> you know, also, I, I, okay, maybe his Democratic colleague said, well, that doesn't, you know, the CBO score has to come in anyway. So what he was saying doesn't really even mean anything that much. If you're Terry McAuliffe. Yeah, you're not happy. <laughs> you're going like, what are you doing? Yeah. Why, yeah. why, why the day before my yeah. friggin' election are you undercutting me in this way? Oh, my oh my God. Well, but we need Joe. Now, Joe uh, had a very, very productive role in the Freedom to Vote Act. Yes. And that's something that, uh, to me, is... Uh, goes to an existential threat to our democracy, which you and I both think is a big deal. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, and the threat and let level. Let me explain why. <laughs> threat level is at DEFCON one right now. Yeah. And because uh, the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, and I've discussed this on the show with Mark Elias, and basically it, it would take care of a lot of what the Republicans have put in in the states to enable their state legislatures or to enable them to overturn the results of yeah. elections, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that will be not just 2024, but 2022, which is critical as well in terms of holding the House and the Senate. Keep in mind that if the Senate goes to the Republicans, there'll be no judges confirmed. Uh, no. Certainly not a Supreme Court justice, but no judges confirmed. And that's kind of why Breyer might want to consider retiring. It certainly would be. And I know that he listens to this, and boy, is he a great justice. I mean, he's been one of the great justices, and I think his legacy is very secure if, if. he retires this year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's uh, also he keeps saying that the court is not political or partisan. How does he say that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how you can uh, after the rulings that have been made after the, uh, the you know, uh, to me, it was hilarious in a bad way when Amy Coney Barrett went to Kentucky with Mitch McConnell at her side. To the, and, to the McConnell Center. To the McConnell Center <laughs> and said, we're not just a bunch of political hacks. <laughs> and thereby proving that they are a bunch of political hacks. Yeah, uh, read the prompter. <laughs> read the prompter, Amy. That was remarkable. But you know what I found hilarious? Did you listen to the uh, arguments 
Yeah. On uh, on the uh, Texas. Yep. SB eight. Uh, yes. Yeah. It it was because just reviewing <laughs> in the shadow docket, they had basically okayed it. They said, okay, no, we're gonna it'll it, it'll take effect, and this is the banning abortions after six weeks after conception. And um, but they didn't they didn't hear any arguments. There was no briefing, so now they had to come back to court again on this. They call it, and now they have arguments. And in the arguments, they're hearing exactly what they would have heard in the arguments if they had had arguments. Yes, and they're hearing like, "Oh Christ, we can't do this." Yeah, <laughs> this this any state could say, "Okay, no one can own a gun in our." Well, you could have a bounty on someone, just a citizen. The state government isn't going to do it. it. Says no one in our state can have a gun anymore, and because you can be sued a, a million dollars, yeah, by a citizen for having a gun. And I was listening to these arguments, and you saw this in real time dawning on these idiots, yeah. <laughs> and including Coney Barrett, yeah, and including uh, uh, Kavanaugh. And not including Gorsuch and uh, Alito, nothing will ever dawn on him, and and Thomas. But on but abortion. you know when what they did in the shadow docket was uh, whatever they do in this bill now. And remember, they're also taking up a Mississippi case, which is the real opportunity to blow up Roe v. Wade. But here you have an act done in Texas that openly, directly violates constitutional rights because as of the time this was enacted, as of the time they heard the appeal for an injunction to stop it until the arguments could be held. Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. And it was done explicitly to evade judicial challenge by setting up these vigilante bounty hunters. Uh, So you have this unique way of trying to get around a constitutional right. And you have an injunction that basically says, well, wait a minute, we're going to stop this for now so people can have their rights until we can see whether this is something that actually is valid. And instead, they say, screw that, you keep going ahead. And as they did that, even though they expedited this one hearing, although we still don't have a ruling yet, We've now had many weeks in which very likely some women have had to resort to back alley abortions and there probably have been some people killed as a consequence. Others have had their lives destroyed. And remember, this bill makes no distinctions. You could be raped by your father at the age of 12 and have to carry that baby to term. You can be raped by somebody else. You can have uh, uh, even a life-threatening condition. Doesn't matter to them. That you didn't have a court that said, this should not be going forward until we make that determination. It just tells you volumes about how extreme these justices are. Not only that, but the arguments, uh, if you were listening to the arguments, 
in the Supreme Court when they took it up again, the second when they actually yeah. had the arguments, you could see it dawning on them. And but this stuff had dawned on people right away. Oh yeah, right away. I, we, I, I discussed it with Dolly Lithwick, and right away we said guns. Why, why yeah. not do this with guns? Yeah. But it it seemed like Kavanaugh <laughs> and Coney Barrett hadn't thought of that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, my guess is that they thought of it. They knew that in the end, this was going to go, but that they're fanatical enough on this issue that they were willing to have it stay in effect for months longer because along the way, even if it's completely illegitimate in terms of what a court should be doing, they could stop some abortions. Okay, that that speaks doesn't speak very highly of them. No, as, it's a, well, as, we have a, a balancing test here. Is this out of ignorance or diabolical malevolence? <laughs> <laughs> and I tilt the scales towards the diabolical malevolence. And I'm being kind. I think <laughs> yes, there is. Yes. <laughs> You're being naive. Couldn't they be both? Well, sure. Yeah. Okay, that's the solution. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Norm Ornstein. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Let's talk about uh, the Freedom to Vote Act. Yeah. So you and I have had, and I think this audience yeah. has heard a lot about it, this uh, very quickly, our filibuster modification. Yep. And basically, it is instead of 60 to uh, end a filibuster, you need 41 to sustain it and have to show up on the floor. 41 have to show up on the floor and to sustain it. And then they have to stay on the floor and they have to debate. And debate germanely. So you don't read green eggs and ham. Unless that's germane. Well, it could be. I suppose <laughs> there could be a, a case uh, trying to ban uh, green eggs and ham. Uh, <laughs> after all, we have other books being banned. Maybe that one will be next. Um, but if, say, to pick one theoretical example, they brought up the Mansion to Me gun bill mm -hmm. uh, with universal background checks that are supported by 94% of Americans. You would have to explain 
at length why you were standing with 6% and the gun manufacturers against 94% of Americans with a common sense plan to keep guns out of the hands of people who should never have access to them. Uh, over time, you're not likely to persuade a lot of people that you're on the right track. Well, also, it's good to have debate. Yeah. And people, you know, uh, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, there would be debate on voting laws and like the law of you can't give water to someone online. Yep. And it's like, okay, can you guys explain that? I mean, why is it, why should it be illegal yeah. to give water to someone online? Please, let's have this debate. Yeah. And now the other part of that is if you're on the floor for a long period of time, we've all heard their stock answers when they go on uh, Sunday talk shows or on any of the cable news shows. Well, that's a good point. And yeah. it is, and it's, you know, it's just not refuted. It, it just gets out there. You know, you, we're federalizing elections. It's up to the states. And there are states, many of them, including uh, Maryland, that uh, don't allow you to have water, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, as you get close to the polls. And if you had real debate, you could expose the uh, lies and distortions for what they are. And, you know, you'd have some focus on it. I want to go back to the gun issue in this case as well. Where we are now with the filibuster, you've told this story many times, but I think it's a, a good one to repeat that you were a new senator. You were trying to build relationships with your colleagues. It was a Thursday afternoon. You saw Jim Bunning, an irascible Republican, and you said, uh, Jim, uh, have a nice weekend. See you Monday. And he said, no, you won't. You have to be here. <laughs> I don't. It's a cloture vote. Right. Because now the burden's on the majority. So the House passed earlier this year two gun measures, one of which was universal background checks. Nobody knows it. They're not going to be enacted. Why? Because there's no reason that Chuck Schumer will bring up a bill that now will be filibustered and they'll filibuster the motion to proceed. So it's going nowhere and you're just not going to take the time to do it. So people don't know that measures that would bring us universal background checks are being blocked by Republican intransigence because it's all completely under the surface. If you have the provision that we've talked about and they have to have 41 on the floor, it's going to bring public attention to the issue and it's going to be clear why we're not getting that and why there should be some public pressure to make it happen. So you're not just going to get debate, you're going to shed light on issues that now don't get any uh, coverage. Yeah. And our plan would actually give the minority the opportunity to negotiate. In other words, yeah. uh, they'd give them a reason, a reason to, to negotiate, a, an uh, incentive to negotiate, yeah, where that, now there's none. Yeah. Because if okay, now, shoot, we're going to have to go on the floor and stay there for two days or three days. I don't want to yeah. do that. Why don't we just negotiate on this and make it a little bit more yeah. palatable to us? Yeah. And that could be on anything, any damn thing. Yeah, and that, of course, the great irony here is that Mansion and Cinema are uh, opposed to eliminating or weakening the filibuster, as they say, because the Senate should be one where you have uh, bipartisan 
action and super majorities, which doesn't recognize that fundamental reality, that now there is no incentive to do that unless every once in a while there's an occasion where a Mitch McConnell will say, we should probably do something here because it'll serve our interests politically. That's what happened with the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They thought, one, it's popular. Two, we've got a lot of Republicans up in 2022 and they can claim credit. And you can head off the bigger bill by getting this one done. I was asked by Democrats in, in Minnesota very nervously. I remember being at some event and the day that vote was going to happen on the infrastructure bill, will it pass the Senate? Will it pass the Senate? And I said, oh, yeah, it will overwhelmingly yeah. pass the Senate because if it doesn't, then Democrats will just do it in reconciliation. They'll do it as part of the reconciliation package. Then Republicans will get no credit whatsoever for anything. So they will vote for it. And that's why we got 60, 69 votes. And so, of course, they're going to vote for it so that they get credit for the infra infrastructure package. So I went, oh, oh, okay. But that's, that's how it works, yeah. right? So I refer to our plan as restoration of the filibuster. It really does. It restores it to what it was yeah. where – Yes, every once in a while when you really feel strongly about something, you filibuster. But otherwise, it gives you incentive to negotiate Yeah, and say, okay, well, we don't want to filibuster because it's a pain in the ass, so we'll negotiate. Or, or you, you stay intransigent, but then you're going to have to go to enormous lengths, physical endurance and otherwise, to keep it from happening. And you can delay it for a significant period of time. But if the majority sees it as a critical priority, which is what we have with these voting uh, bills, they will stop everything else and go round the clock. And eventually, the minority is going to break and you're going to be able to get them enacted. That's kind of what the filibuster was. That's what, it's, uh, what it was. It was the, the whole theory behind it is on matters of great national significance, where a minority feels so deeply and strongly, and most often it was not a partisan one, interestingly. It wasn't no, done, broke down on partisan lines. segregation. Yeah. yeah. But you will be willing to go to these great lengths, and a part of it is in doing so and bringing the place to a halt, you're going to cast a spotlight. And if your views are powerful enough, the public is going to hear this debate and they're going to swing in your direction and the majority will then become a minority in terms of popular support. But there's none of that now. Yeah, what struck me when I got to the Senate was how little debate there yeah. is, how yeah. very rarely would there be, you know, a number of senators there and one responding to another and going back and forth and actually yeah. having a rational debate yeah. on a subject. That was very, very infrequent. And I think Americans would tune into this. Yeah. So they would actually, this would be of value in another way. So it'd be a drama and it would, I think, change the way news organizations write about and think about issues. It would get a public that would pay attention to things that now most don't pay any attention to. But it also, when it's used to block something that is clearly of uh, value or has broad support across all sectors of America, you force a minority trying to block it for its own purposes, 
sometimes extreme ideology, sometimes just because they think it'll give them a partisan advantage, to explain themselves over and over. Or sometimes because they're protecting interests. Big interests, yes. That, that finance Yeah, their, like their gun campaign. interests or fossil fuel interests. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or just pharmaceuticals or, yeah. plant, you know. We, there are a lot of big interests, yes. There are a lot of big interests, and this uh, might bring some of that to light. But as it is right now, you can filibuster the dumbest, slightest, nothing thing. Yeah. <laughs> as easy as going, I object, and then you're filibustering. So uh, here's a, a, another example with a little bit of irony twisted into it as well. So people have this idea that they eliminated the filibuster for nominations. First for lower court, below the Supreme Court, and for executive nominees, and then for the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. They didn't eliminate the filibuster. They changed the threshold for cloture from 60 to 50. You can have the 50, but for every single nomination, there's still hoops you have to jump through that can soak up an enormous amount of floor time. All that a, a filibuster in this case means is you deny unanimous consent to move to a vote. Then you've got to file a cloture motion and you have two days for that cloture motion to ripen. Then you have some debate and you get a vote and maybe you get your cloture vote. But the rules allow for many hours of post-cloture debate. So there are over a thousand executive nominees that require Senate approval. Right now, Ted Cruz, and Josh Hawley have put holds, meaning they will filibuster, deny unanimous consent on every nominee for the State Department and most for national security positions. There are more than 30 key positions in the State Department, key ambassadorial positions, key positions in the department itself being held up. And you're talking about hundreds of hours of floor time that would be required for them. And it's damaging to national security. Jim Inhofe, one of your former colleagues, went on the floor and complained that they weren't doing the defense authorization bill. And why didn't they uh, have the floor time to take up the defense authorization bill because it's damaging to national security? And the basic reason is because all the floor time is being taken up by your anti-national security colleagues, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, because it's the only way you can get these confirmations done. So you've got to find ways by changing these rules. So you can, can this time be eaten up simultaneously or each has to be I, on top of the other or what? Right now, the rules <laughs> require each nomination to be done separately. I have been pushing for a very long time for the rules to change so you can do multiple confirmations at once. You know, if he wants to hold up 33 people, instead of having 33 separate approvals taking many days and dozens of hours on the floor where you can't do anything else, do all 33 at once. Do 10 at once. And that's a simple change to make. You got to have 50 votes to do it. Mm -hmm. But it, that's one where actually you might even get a couple of Republicans thinking ahead to uh, the fact that at some point they'll have the presidency, or at least a few that might care about national security and diplomacy enough to want to see some of these people confirmed and not let 
Um, how, how much uh, sway does Mitch have over? Can can he just say to people, "No, you can't do that." Well, he clearly has, mm -hmm. and he's done that repeatedly. Isn't it fair to say that he's ruined the Senate oh, yeah. single-handedly? It would be unfair to say anything other than that he's explain, ruined the Can Senate. you explain that to folks? So any institution, but the Senate especially, you operate with laws, with rules, with norms, and the norms are particularly important. If you try and misuse the rules, distort the rules, do things for naked political advantage or to damage the country because you think it will bring you advantage, then you're not going to have an institution that works. Now, in the House of Representatives, it's a little bit different because it's uh, with 435 members, the norms are important, but it's the rules that matter because you can make things happen. You don't have this filibuster issue. You can move to a vote. The majority, the majority can, is can, the majority. Can, and the majority can frame the time of debate and all the rest of it. Uh, in the Senate, it's always been one where the norms matter more than anything else. The classic element to this is you can rarely get anything done without having unanimous consent to move forward. It's not just even that you need 60. You can't even start a process without unanimous consent. The one exception to that right off the bat is reconciliation, where you can move forward because there's uh, expedited guaranteed votes. But with everything else, you need unanimous consent. The filibuster has been a rule that's been in existence in one form or another for more than a century, goes back to right around the time of the First World War, and it's been altered many, many times. The idea that it's always been the same is an anomaly. And one of the things we've tried to educate Joe Manchin on, because he occupies the seat held for more than 50 years by Robert C. Byrd, the rules expert in the Senate, the longtime majority leader, widely viewed as a protector of those uh, norms. But he changed the rules <laughs> during his tenure numerous uh, times. You know, you have that rule, but the understanding always was you're not going to use it except in cases of extreme national concern. And you're certainly not going to use it for something where there's a broad consensus. What McConnell did was to see that after the rule changed in 1975, where it went from two-thirds present and voting, which meant if you went round the clock, they'd have to be there at night sleeping right. on cots. And this is important. I want people to focus on this for a yeah. second. Two-thirds present and voting, because people, when this was changed, what year was it, 1975? It went from two-thirds present and voting to 60. And people went, oh, it went from 67 to 60. That makes it easier to overcome a filibuster. New. No. Because two-thirds present and voting means two-thirds of the senators who were present and voting. So if there are only 60 senators there, you just need 40. And going back to talking to Jim Bunning yeah. and him saying like, me saying, I'll see you on Monday. Have a good, have a great week. I'll see you on Monday. I don't have to be here. It's a closure vote. He'd have to go like, yeah, I got to be here. <laughs> yeah. And then he'd have to be there at three in the morning for a vote and at four in the morning. And he'd have to be there on the weekends, uh, very possibly. So, and I'm, I'm sure 
the senators who went from two-thirds president voting to 60 thought they were making it easier, Yeah, but they weren't. No, and what they thought, and but you know, it's also important getting back to what McConnell did for decades after that rule was changed, it didn't have a huge difference because the norms remained. You aren't going to use this for obstruction purposes. What McConnell did, especially in the Obama presidency, was he used this as a tool, a weapon of mass obstruction, trying to raise the bar and soak up an enormous amount of floor time for confirmations, including some that ultimately passed unanimously or near unanimously for tiny little bills and big bills because floor time in the Senate is precious. That's what you use to actually make things happen. And in a presidency, if you want to block it, you block it. But the you look at norms again. In the Senate, it's 100 collegial people, a collegial body in theory. Yeah. You try and bend over backwards to take into account what your colleagues need and what they do. You know, Joe Biden used to uh, be eloquent about how when he came to the Senate, having lost his wife and daughter in this horrific car accident and his two sons in the hospital for months, the Senate would bend over backwards to make sure that they wouldn't hold votes when he had to take a train back to Delaware to be with his remaining kids and how they were sensitive to his emotions and needs. So you're there on the floor with the Affordable Care Act and talk about the bird incident. Well, we needed 60 votes. This was for the ACA. And there were 60 Democrats. And there were 60 Democrats. And normally in the old days, they would have they would have actually done a vote trade where yeah. a Republican would have voted for Byrd instead of making him come in literally on his deathbed. And so he was kind of carried in in a wheelchair, and he had his hand in the air, and he went, shame, shame, shame. It was the most disgraceful it, 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 disgraceful is the right word. Uh, despicable is another word. But Mitch McConnell, who is still portrayed outrageously by many in the press as an institutionalist, as a defender of the Senate and its norms and traditions. He single-handedly destroyed the Who Senate. had, you know, known Byrd for a very long time, lets him go through this horrible pain unnecessarily. And it was like giving a middle finger to not just his longtime colleague and somebody who, you know, of course, the other uh, despicable irony in this is Bird comes in and everybody gives him a standing ovation, uh, you know, (laughs) even as they're basically sticking it to him. And that's all Mitch McConnell. Um, It's it's really uh, different from any other leader I have ever seen. I mean, on the other hand, you do a great Mitch McConnell. Um, I, I, thank you. Well, uh, let's, what are you hoping for? I mean, hoping for, we come up with, uh, yeah, a bill well, soon. And first we need to get these two infrastructure bills, the physical, the human infrastructure done. And then it's going to be important to sell them. And it's also going to be important for us to recognize that, Whatever his limitations as a soaring rhetorician uh, or in other ways, if this happens and we get these two bills, we will have done 
transformational things for the society that I believe rival what happened in the Great Society. The Biden presidency will have enacted in its first year, if they're done, just about $5 trillion in transformational policy, getting the country out of a deep hole uh, from COVID and creating programs for jobs, for helping people, spreading healthcare tremendously, doing things that are going to make this a better society. And he didn't do it with the ease that happened with the Great Society because of the swollen supermajorities of Democrats in both houses, plus a time when some Republicans actually voted for things like Medicare and public education, but with a 50-50 Senate and a margin of three or four in the House. And then it should be Here's what's in this bill and why it's important for people. Then we turn directly to these voting rights bills. The Freedom to Vote Act, I hope a revision of the Electoral Count Act so we don't get another January 6th uh, nightmare or worse, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And in particular, you mentioned earlier the pivotal role that Manchin played with the uh, Freedom to Vote Act. Um, he uh, hammered together a compromise. With really with, good stuff in it and yes. stuff that actually dealt with the stuff the Republicans had passed in the meantime yeah. between the uh, the first voting rights bill, which was called the- S-1 and uh, and H-R-1. Uh, and I, uh, the For the People? Yeah, For the People Act. There yeah, you go. the For the People Act. This is two old guys who can't remember things. <laughs> Rose, what was the name of that act? <laughs> <laughs> the freedom, <laughs> the freedom to vote act, uh, which actually responded to like some of the stuff, like giving yeah. uh, the state legislature the right to overturn. The- well, they, you know, th- this is a bill that Manchin wanted to do one because, having been a former Secretary of State in West Virginia, he genuinely cares about giving voters the ability to vote. Two, it was to prove. That by creating a compromise, even if it was first a compromise among Democrats, that he then would have the vehicle to take out there and get 10 Republicans to support it. Yeah, we got none. Uh, Bring them up. They go down again on a filibuster. And then I think we have the moment to make the case. Uh, And, you know, they can do this in one of two ways. Uh, The one way is just to make an exception, just lower the threshold to 54 election and voting issues. There's, you know, a constitutional reason to do it, um, at least an excuse to do it, because the Constitution (laughs) explicitly says Congress has the authority to determine the time, manner, and place of federal elections, and that shouldn't be one that requires a supermajority. But if they do that, and I will rejoice because we'll get protection against our democracy being destroyed, but it's not good enough. For all the reasons we've said, we want something broader that takes away the ability to do these piddly filibusters just to obstruct, that doesn't give us the opportunity to have debate, that keeps this as something where the burden is entirely on the majority for everything else, climate change measures, gun measures, anything you might imagine, and I think we're going to have a chance. And Manchin has said many publicly favorable things about the idea of flipping the numbers from 60 to 41. Of and end of having a talking filibuster. Having a talking filibuster. The two in c- combined are what makes this powerful. And I think if we read what 
Kirsten Cinema has said about the filibuster. This answers all of her objections as well. We got a fighting shot. Well, but let's end it on that. Yeah. Um, we've, we've, uh, thank you again. Uh, well, thank you. No, no, no. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> well, <I'm, well, laughs> yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Norm. You bet. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.